a first year grad student who's still excited. <laughs> oh, oh that's what everybody says. Yes, I'm, I'm, it. I'm like, guys, I'm so excited. And then the, all of the folks that I've met just kind of give me a look like, yeah, mm-hmm. okay, we'll see what happens. Comforter and counselor, administrator and teacher, spirit led, truth seeker, minister and janitor, prophet, preacher, sermon leader. Welcome to What the Hell is a Pastor, a podcast about life in set-apart ministry. Each week, we sit down to talk about our experiences and challenges as pastors doing small-town ministry during uncertain times. Join us as we try to figure out what the hell it is that pastors do and how to do it as best we can. Listeners, this week we have a guest on the podcast. It is our professor from seminary who we've asked to be on the pod before, Dr. Algendi. And so I think we'll skip the usual kind of how was your week things because that will come in as we talk through the episode. But Dr. Algendi, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure, I'm happy to. Uh, My name is Rick Algendi and I teach ethics and public theology at Wesley. And I will now insist, Ethan and Joe, that you call me Rick for the remainder of this podcast. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Uh, uh, I can't can't say that Dr. Algendi was my father per se, but uh, I don't (laughs) think. Uh, This is actually, I continually hope that someone will write a paper for one of my classes on the ethics of my inviting people to to use my first name because it seems to me good in the sense that it um, undoes some of the hierarchy, but also tricky in that many of my uh, colleagues who aren't white men have a difficult time um, getting the respect that they deserve uh, without invoking some, some titles. This is, this is something that's like a common complaint in the academic world. And Truth. so I, uh, I want someone to solve that for me sometime in, in, in writing. Uh, so I'm, I'm delighted to, uh, to be with you today. I've long been a listener of this podcast, and I'm grateful for, for what you do. I'm grateful to join you. Thanks. We're excited to have you here. Ethan has been very pumped about this. He's been thinking of things to ask and talk about. Oh, <laughs> I have been. I have All been. right, good. Uh, I'm also excited. So I think where we're going to start for this episode is you have... Um, we have both talked extensively about our kind of faith backgrounds and uh, Ethan has talked about how he was very good at, at church, but wasn't a Christian until later in his life. And I hear that you have kind of a, not an exactly similar story, but a story that has some of the same things. So will you talk about um, how you came to be a professor of ethics, Christian ethics and all of its glory? Yeah, it's a, it's quite the tale indeed. I'll give you the more or less abbreviated version. Um, so I didn't, I didn't grow up in the church either. I think probably before I was 18, I darkened the doors of a church five or six times, uh, all on Christmas. And um, that's because in part, my parents came over here from Egypt right before I was born. Uh, my dad's an Egyptian person. And my mom uh, was a daughter of Presbyterian missionaries in Alexandria. And they raised me sort of outside of the orbit of any traditional confession, either my dad's side of the family's uh, uh, Islamic faith or my mom's side of the family's Presbyterian tradition. And uh, so, of course, being the um, 
highly sensitive and cautious teenager I was. I declared myself an atheist upon like the first, the first existentialist book I came across <laughs> when you. I was a teenager. Um, and uh, I think w w there was also this real profound sense of political engagement and activity in my family growing up. Like it, debate was encouraged mm. um, around the dinner table and, and whatnot. Um, and so in high school, I uh, was like, uh, really engaged with the debate team and I founded a political action club and I worked on a congressional campaign wow. and um, was like prepared to launch myself into this political career. I, I uh, came to college in DC. I was going to be the president of the United States. This was like very clear defined goal. <laughs> I knew like the election, obviously by the constitution, you have to be at least 35. So I knew exactly which election it was I'm not going to say which, uh, where I meet the requirement. Um, but this other weird thing happened near the end of high school where I got into this series of um, let's call them let's call them debates with my calculus teacher who was an evangelical Wheaton grad guy oh wow uh, who who wanted to argue me into belief in the existence of God and ultimately the the particular truth of Christianity. You so lived we, uh, God's Not Dead. You lived the plot of God's oh, Not Dead. Oh, completely, completely. <laughs> like we did, we did the Alpha Course and everything. Like it was oh so my very, gosh, really? So very he he is uniquely good. He, he was a he's a wonderful and lovable character. I really dislike a lot of his positions theologically, mm. uh, but he is also a distinct and uh, fascinating character, who. Um, was well suited to meet, you know, 17 year old Rick, um, who was also probably insufferable uh, in his own <laughs> unique ways. Um, so, so much for the abbreviated version of the story. But anyway, the point is, uh, the point is that like I conceded defeat when I was 18 and about to go off to college saying like, I guess I have no arguments left against the truth of Christianity. And then I went to a, you know, a Jesuit college where I was required to take theology classes. And so the process of going through college was a process of falling out of love with politics in the way that I'd imagined it. Um, seeing, seeing what elected off, holding elected office was actually like, while at the same time falling in love with theology. And I know you both have had something like this experience too. For me, it was, um, there's one moment that stands out where I discovered uh, in one of my exciting Friday nights in the library, um, <laughs> a book on the four cardinal virtues. And I thought, oh my gosh, there's a language for mm. this stuff that's happening inside me. Like someone, this was just like a sort of straightforward book in Catholic moral psychology. And uh, I was just astounded that someone could talk about my interiority in that way. Mm. And that, um, that experience never left me. And like, there's been all kinds of changes along the way. I was, you know, in, in college, a ridiculous Christian conservative because I thought that's sort of what I had to be. Mm. Uh, and so there's been like transformation after transformation after that. But the basic continuity amidst all that transformation has been my sense that um, these disciplines that I work with hold the power for a certain kind of revelation to me in particular. Mm. And, um, you know, I've been, been really fortunate to find a, an outlet for that. So the last thing I'll say, just like how I came to be at Wesley, right, is that at some point in my uh, graduate career, I discovered um, <clears throat> that the way I saw theology 
was always going to be political because that part of me was not something I'd sort of just left behind. Mm -hmm. And um, I figured after a while that the way I should understand that is in terms of public theology, that that was really the, the sense, um, the rhetorical sense more than anything that I had of my, my own vocation. And that included political theology, which is like the, the sub-discipline that I had been mostly been working in uh, in my grad school career. Um, and then when I got this fellowship from the Louisville Institute and I said, hey, I do public theology, you should send me somewhere. They said, oh, we know a place uh, that's starting a center for public theology. And uh, one, of, one of their faculty who does public theology is currently on leave and you can go keep his chair warm. And um, that's what I did. And a bunch of things worked out. And now the current generations, at least, of Wesley students are stuck with me. Woo! <laughs> I appreciate that you... Uh acknowledge that like in order to succeed in academia stuff just kind of has to work out sometimes oh mostly yeah yeah I feel like we have this kind of mythical story of if you're just smart enough things are gonna go but yeah no things just have to work out um yeah there's something so mercifully brutal about the academic job market (laughs) that you can't you almost can't mistake it for being about personal virtue or skill. Mm. It's completely structured. Ethan and I have had this conversation. Yes, yes. Okay. <laughs> I'm glad y'all talked about that already. Um, the, the last kind of question I have to kick us off is I kind of see from that how maybe the idea of being a pastor never entered into your mind. But for a lot of people who come to faith later in life, they mistake kind of a revelation of faith for a call to be in pastoral ministry. Did you ever have to answer that question or were you just like, no, I'm going to think deeply about things? There were like three weeks in college where I thought about it. I was in, uh, you know, you guys know Chi Alpha, the Pentecostal campus yes. fellowship. Oh. Yeah. That, was my, uh, that was my main unit of belonging in college, which was mm-hmm. great in many ways. And also uh, something that's in my past that I've left, left behind, uh, no pun intended. Um, <laughs> Sorry, and in the paradigm, I wasn't ready for that one to hit me. <laughs> I, I didn't actually intend that one, so. Uh, I wasn't yeah, there, were, there were good levels to that, Pentecostal, <laughs> left behind. I'm like, that's wow, right. that's pretty good. I mean, it, you, there's, something, there's something deeply important that you only understand about me if you understand that the first year I was a Christian, I only read left behind books and the book of Revelation. Mm. Oh, mm. Uh, I got it now. Yeah, it all makes sense now. Um, So in Chi Alpha, um, the paradigm for, uh, I don't, maybe I shouldn't say, the thing I was going to say was the paradigm for being a serious Christian was becoming a professional Christian Mm -hmm. of some kind. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that's true. That's maybe not the most generous interpretation, but there was definitely a lot of encouragement to go in that direction. And of course, encouragement combined with a mistrust of academia Mm. that meant like their idea of professional Christians was pastors and missionaries. So in that climate, I thought about it for roughly three weeks before I discovered, wait, all the things I would like about being a pastor are the things that are actually being a congregation's local theologian. Mm. And also I would be completely useless at a bedside. I mean, for for a parishioner like it's it's one thing if it's people in your life you have some sort of attachment to but um the the parts of the parts of pastoring that are not like being a professor are not the parts that play to my personal strengths and vocations 
So more power to you. Love uh, the work you do. Uh, I want to I wanna help you as a layperson. And it's been clear to me for a long time that uh, pastoral ministry is not my, my particular vocation. That makes sense. I have a quick story to jump in with, and then I want Ethan to ask questions or share thoughts. Uh, but speaking of being at bedsides, I have a woman in my congregation who is unfortunately on hospice care. And so I had gone in to see her yesterday at the nursing home and I had to put on full PPE. So I have like the goggles on, I have the gown, I even had like a little net for my hair. Uh, and of course, like a, a cert, uh, N95 mask. And so I go in and I'm like, all ready. And they're like, she just had a shower. So she's probably awake. She is not awake. She's just laying there. And she pulls the, the nose thing, the cannula out of her nose for her oxygen. And I was like, oh no, ma'am, you have to put that back in. And so I'm like standing there very nervously being like, can I touch it? I, my hands are sanitized. I guess I can touch it. She needs to breathe. And so I like go up and I like put it back in and I'm like, I guess that's fine. And then I call the nurse to like, be like, come fix it for me. Cause I did it wrong. Uh, and the nurse didn't come right away and she pulls it out again and like puts it in her mouth. And I'm like, that doesn't seem sanitary. And so I like gently move it back up and I'm like, ma'am, you have to, I'm using her name, but I'm not using it on the podcast. You have to leave that in your nose. You need your oxygen. And she like rolls over and looks at me and goes, who are you? Go away. And then rolls back over. <laughs> and I'm like, I'll just be over here until the nurse comes back and then I'll pray with you. I'm your pastor. <laughs> So like, despite the fact that I have grown by leaps and bounds over the past couple of years in terms of like pastoral presence, there are some moments where I do not knock it out of the park. <laughs> so, you know, we all grow, we all learn. <laughs> uh, I, showing up for that is 60% of the battle and more power to you for your <laughs> Ethan, what you got? What are your thoughts? Um, I mean, I always love listening. That's the first time I've, I've really heard, uh, uh, Rick's story in that way. So that, that's really cool. Um, Agreed. I, uh, yeah, like, so, you know, kind of for me being able to take classes with Rick and like kind of being introduced to the world of public theology is a really important thing for me in my, not only in my faith development, but also in you know, just doing the stuff I'm doing now, like those classes are, are directly, you know, a, a direct catalyst for the stuff that I'm doing right now and, and getting ready to do at the University of Virginia. And so it's just really cool to have, you know, Rick on and, and to, to be listening to him again. So Rick, I, I have kind of general questions that I've been thinking about, not only for me, but since you and I are, are in something of the same field are going to be in something of the same field. Um, I was wondering what your thoughts were on this. So in the midst of uh, COVID, you know, for the last several months, the podcast has been dominated by how we as pastors are doing COVID, you know, and, and how and not then only, racial justice and then of course, racial justice. But uh, in the midst of, of, you know, COVID-19, both in as a layperson, Rick, and also as a, a professor of theology in which you're teaching future clergy and future theologians, how has COVID kind of in, in, and, and the stuff that it's revealed impacted your teaching and your understanding of public theology? Has it impacted it? Yeah, I mean, what a 
what a, what a significant question. Um, the, I mean, the first, the first thing to say about it is just the sheer magnitude of human tragedy, um, the loss of life, the morbidity, the economic loss, I mean, everything that, that it takes. And um, I think one of the things that that's doing is forcing a wider array of people to recognize the precarity and vulnerability of human life as such, but also the dislocations forced by our particular social systems. Mm. Um, and so it feels like there's a climate of urgency to thinking about social ethics and public theology that probably always should have been there, right? I mean, the emergency always holds, it just holds mm. elsewhere. Um, but uh, it's, it's putting more of us in touch with it. And that is, I think, useful, though it's not something I would wish, wish for. Um, it's useful in thinking about these things, and that's really important. Um, I, so the other thing I would say is that it um, amplifies my sense that one of the things Christians need to be thinking about is how we have imagined the political and the non-political, or the public and the private. Um, the point that I've continually been making. And I actually, so I taught a, a doctor of ministry class in 2019 that I uh, sort of reoriented around this question of public and private. Um, that the distinction between the political and the non-political or the distinction between the public and private is itself a political distinction. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And this is really, so there are a lot of places you could go to think about this, but um, Nancy, Nancy Frazier, who's a social theorist uh, at the New School, has a really classic piece on the Anita Hill, uh, the defamation of Anita Hill and the, and the Clarence Thomas hearings uh, from the 90s called, I think, like Sex Lies in the Public Square. Uh, and the point there is to think about how um, privacy is a technique wielded by people in power to remove certain sorts of questions from public consideration. Um, and how uh, at least, uh, I think, I think the, the way Fraser lands is that um, we should always think of public private as like a, a series of contestations um, and not as like a given set of, set of spheres because the, the sort of givenness of privacy is often used to again, remove things from public deliberation in a harmful way. Um, and I think that, uh, I, I promise I'm getting to the original question by the, the long route. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. interrupt me if I go on too long here. Um, so so uh, one of the things we need to think about very carefully as Christians is how much we have allowed ourselves to be privatized mm -hmm. in a certain way. To think, of, to think of ourselves as fundamentally what happens within the walls of the church, uh, who then may take something outside, so to speak, like using a spatial metaphor, to a public square without recognizing that we, um, in just in the most basic sense, like belong to broader publics. The church is itself a kind of public, and we belong to those publics, and we are formed by them. We are not like accidentally implicated in structures like white supremacy and patriarchy. Like right. those, are, those are things that make up who we are. And um, the sense 
<clears throat> the sense we have in the modern West that um, we are private citizens first, we like um, can understand ourselves on our own terms, uh, on the most intimate terms of interiority. Um, I think all of that sort of needs to be disrupted by the sense that we like actually belong to a world. And I think that what COVID is doing is it's forcing us to see that, right? That like you can hoard all the hand sanitizer and uh, toilet paper you want, but um, the way that you belong to the world means that if the people around you get sick, like you are very likely to get sick. And even if you don't, if all the people around you get sick, like the, the social and economic institutions that you depend on around you are going to, to like crash, like crash into the ground. And so um, I think what this moment is doing is on the one hand, um, vividly showing us like the stake we actually have in each other, not like a moral stake yet yeah, definitely. Uh, but the, but the almost, like if I believed in ontology, I would say ontological stake here. Like the, like the very basic, the very basic stake we have as human persons in each other. Um, it's showing us that in a sort of vivid way. And it's also showing us that like, uh, we're, since we're unable to be inside the walls of the church, mostly, we have to figure out some way of um, living out Christian faith in the world like straightforwardly in the world. Like we can have Zoom meetings on Sunday mornings and that's great. That's what my church is doing. Um, but there's a, a new sense in which we simply can't compartmentalize it to a building. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, salutary in a way. Mm -hmm. It's also the case that just so much of my, so much of the burden on the person in my role and my own like personal vocation and personal voice theologically have to do with like drawing our attention to structures of power, like race and gender, and the way that the pandemic is disproportionately affecting black and brown people, the way that it's forcing sort of responsibilities of care, mostly on women, whether or not they're professional women, right? Um, all of that is sort of heightening, heightening the problems of our social world in a way that is uh, subject to the work we do together. Yeah. I, um, that, that really helped me put a language to something that I've been seeing in my church, which is that, um, because people in my church are not used to living their Christian faith out in the public square, because they don't see that as a part of their discipleship in a way that they can grow in a way that the spirit can work through us. They feel like because we have not met in church, we have not been church and they have not had anything to mm -hmm to even though they're like listening to sermons and all of two of them are listening to the entire pre-recorded service that I work so hard on, but I love you anyway. You're doing great. Uh, <laughs> they're like, they're people keep on being like, I just, I feel lost. I feel left. I feel like we, like, I don't feel the spirit in my life, even though I've preached sermon after sermon about how the spirit is with us. Whereas for me, because I had those years at Wesley and practicing my faith in the public sphere is also a part of how I experience God and grow as a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's a big part of my faith. I have pivoted toward that during the pandemic because there were ample opportunities to do it. And that was part of how I have um, kept my own faith going. And so that's the, that's part of the disconnect that my congregation and I have is that like me speaking out for racial 
justice is a part of me continuing to be a part of the body of Christ seeking to like bring about the reign of God in whatever way we want to talk about that. And they feel like they're just lost. They don't know what to do because they don't have access to that. They don't understand that you can do that as a Christian, which is a disservice that previous generations of pastors have done, but also like we understand why they did it. So it's, it's hard to be angry at anybody, but it is, it's a clear fact to kind of point to. Mm, definitely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rick, you don't believe in ontology? That was, I was going to be like, maybe that should be our mini so. <laughs> I, I, now I, now I'm curious. You don't have to explain yourself, of course, but I'm, I'm curious now. Uh, I mean, I, I prefer, let's, I prefer to use ontology as a last resort. Okay. I would much rather think uh, in terms of relationships, like social and political relationships, and I would much rather historicize mm. before I mm. before I ontologize. And probably, probably, if you're a Christian theologian, you have to you have to do a little ontologizing at some point. Um, that's sure. my that's my concession. Fair but uh, like the like I think the the moment requires. So I think I think that people are popularly sort of ontologists. People mm. think in terms of nature and essences uh, spontaneously. I think actually what the political moment calls for is a lot of uh, historicizing and like naming of reification, right? So reification is just a fancy word for thingifying. Um, there's like a, there's like a set of social relationships. Uh, race is one such set of social relationships. And the, the lie that race is always trying to tell you is that it's a natural category, that mm-hmm. it's like a quality of a thing, right? Uh, whereas it's only it's only made it's like the illusion of making a quality of a thing by virtue of a social practice, and right. as you all know, because you've you've talked about principalities and powers, and principalities and powers is like one of the central theological concepts in my own thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, and this is to Joe's comment from just a moment ago. Um, I think that something something fundamental about Christian life is in the resisting and transforming of those sorts of social practices mm-hmm. like uh the the central drama of the new testament for me is like christ's confrontation with the principalities and powers such as white supremacy i mean white supremacy in its current form didn't exist in the first century but such as like the nations and gender and political power and in Christ's uh, confrontation with those things, uh, there is a kind of cosmic, if you want to call it that, drama. Mm. And um, living into that story is like, what is, in some moments I'm tempted to say like the central task of Christian life today. Mm. And so the fact that we've seen it as going to church and doing something religious is, is, like, a, is like a fundamental displacement from what I think the gospel actually is about. And so when I say, when I say that I'm grumpy about ontology and uh, there's some amount of grumpiness about, about ontology as such, I mean that um, the problem, some of the problems that Joe mentioned Mm -hmm. about like the the forms of Christianity that we've inherited have to do with, um, I don't want to say distraction, but like a, a miscasting right of, of mm-hmm. the gospel to be about something something ontological and like a, and like a moral ontology rather than a than a historical god as event 
um, mm. being as relationship. I guess, I guess now we're back into ontology. I'm trying to say all this without becoming a process theologian, basically. <laughs> uh, <laughs> don't tell you. Um, uh, we can, no, we can I, revisit that if you want. Uh, no, I no, could. I'll leave it in so that Ian can have his moment of like double fists in the air. I win. <laughs> no, I, I uh, the last minute. Uh, you know, you're right. I, my last class I took at Wesley, I, it was a class I audited with, with that Rick taught on atonement and we were reading, um, Adam Kotzko's, uh, book or section of that book that politics now I can't of think of politics of redemption. That's yeah. right. Uh, uh, and I was really excited because I, because he talks a lot about Irenaeus and I really like Irenaeus. And then I discovered that he's kind of a process theologian. And so I was, I was personally grumpy and I was like, Oh, well, I've been, I've been tricked. And so I kind of, I kind of <laughs> tossed it aside. And one of the folks in the class, I forget who it was, uh, as we were going over it, asked asterisk. He was, uh, the, the, the person was like, uh, Dr. Elgendi, are you, are you a process theologian? And, uh, and and I I inside I was like, all right, here we go. Here's a moment of truth. <laughs> now we're gonna discover if I can actually ask this guy to write a letter of recommendation one day or not, you know. And uh, and and Rick, <laughs> Rick Rick right away was like, no. <laughs> My memory of it was, remember, it was like, no, no. I uh, I like to wave at process theologians when I cross the street and like, hello, you know. And uh, so that stuck with me. That was good. Yeah, I'm. I'm not a process theologian. I think sometimes this is this is an aside. I'll, I'll 15 seconds and then I'll move on. I promise. Sometimes the process theology conversation, because process theology defines itself over and against what it calls classical metaphysics, mm-hmm. gets gets drawn like far too narrowly. So if you mm-hmm. if you think that God is not a like static being beyond being or like uh you know whatever apatheia david bentley hart stuff you want to do um if you don't buy that particular version of god then you're automatically a process theist i think there are actually more options than that mm-hmm. um i think that seeing god uh as dynamic in some in some way is actually very traditional i mean so a lot of the bad guys of process theology like thomas aquinas right would see god <laughs> as as a pure act Mm-hmm. which right. is, you know, we can specify the act of love, um, mm-hmm. but um, that's a, that's a dynamic thing, not a, not a static thing. And of course it's much more complicated than that. Like process theologians are smart. I'm not trying to take away anything from them. I'm just, yeah, waving them, waving at them as I, as I pass by. Right. Right. Yeah. That maybe needs to be something that we should have always clarified on this podcast as far as like Ethan not, is like. Not necessary. E- not necessary. <laughs> no, I think it is though, because we're about to have a process theologian on next week. So maybe we oh, should I be guess that's kinder. True. I guess that's true. But yeah, it's uh, the thing that I always say to Ian is that there there are other ways to do the heavy lifting of process theology than just like process theology and he's like no it's better and i'm like well we're gonna agree to disagree for as long as we can on this so <laughs> that's what we do yeah i don't know uh <laughs> rick I'm, I'm reading a book on robert jensen right now i don't know if you've read any robert jensen but but so far what i've what i've been reading it's been uh strange and uh not really a whole lot like anything that i've read so far he seems pretty unique but but you're you're 
comment about God as an event it strikes me as a really Robert Jensen uh, phrase, at least so far in the book I've been reading. So I don't know. That's just a thing I'm saying. If you have a comment, great. But <laughs> Yeah, I, I read the, uh, the Triune God. Is that the name of uh, one of those books? The Triune Identity. Triune Identity, that's right. And then yeah. there's a two-volume systematics as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I read that for my contemporary Trinitarian theology class. Oh, there you go. I think now 13 years ago. So I so I'm, uh, don't have a lot of the details ready at hand. That's okay. But the God is event stuff, that, that's, that goes back to our uh, Jensen and my common ancestor, KB, of course. Um, so Bart thinks mm-hmm. that um, God's being is in God's act. And so um, there's something... Uh, something in, intrinsically dynamic, intrinsically potent and, and historical. And I know that Jensen's part of Jensen's point is to think in terms of time. Um, right. Thank God in terms of time. And I, I, I find that useful. I didn't find a lot of Jensen terribly appealing myself, mm-hmm. but I, I constantly need a reminder to, I constantly need to be nudged out of thinking in terms of space uh, in order to mm-hmm. think in terms of time. Um, speaking in terms of space is too flat often and mm. it's useful. Uh, I mean, like my, most of my book has this sort of cartographic, like uh, geography kind of flavor to it, thinking about structural power and space, but um, that, that needs to have like something supplementing it. And that's what, and process theology is really good at that too. Like remembering, remembering history, remembering time. Uh, and that's, that's useful. So that's my um, 13 years later, what do I remember about Jensen? <laughs> it's, high, it's, it's so distressing being in a job like this because you realize like, wow, I put in so much work and I just forget. <laughs> you uh, forget. Oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> write, down, write down a sentence. Someone gave me this tip and I haven't been following it like all along as I should have been. Like write down a sentence of what you've taken from each book in the front cover of the book so you can like come back to it. Mm. Use everything. That's smart. That's uh, smart. So I have a question because um, we just, we flew really high in terms of theology just there. We had a very academic discussion for a hot second. Um, and I'm wondering how much, and I think that everybody will have a different thought on this, but how much theology is, um, hmm, I don't want to say necessary. I want to say like helpful, useful uh, for your lay person. So like I would find that being able to kind of map out the changes of Christian thought over the centuries would be helpful for a lot of like lay Christians who think that, um, that, that we believe exactly what Jesus believed, but whereas like Judaism has evolved entirely and Christianity has evolved entirely differently. And there, there's kind of like a history of thought that's really helpful for that. So I don't, we don't need to get into the nitty gritty with our, our congregants, but like our congregants don't know what process theology is. I assume most of them, unless you're in Washington, DC and they're, they're really trying. Um, so what, what level of knowledge is important for your average lay person? Yeah. What a, what a great question. Um, that I feel entirely uncomfortable answering (laughs) because, uh, because like my professional status depends on stewarding like certain kinds of Christian knowledge, Mm -hmm. uh, and, and skills, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, so, so several things I would say, like the first thing I would say is 
God is going to hold you accountable for what you've been given, which mm. is always, always going to be some tiny subs, like the most learned person on the face of the planet bears some tiny fraction of a subset of the knowledge and experience and wisdom of the human adventure, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think that um, God uh, is interested in our faithfulness to the revelation we've had. Now, to be to be clear, um, most of us, most of the time, are not especially faithful. We, we receive prophets in every generation who speak in terms that we can understand perfectly well if we want to. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, in general, I, my judgment, and I suspect you share this, is that Christians have not faithful to those prophets. But hey, let's do better. Uh, let's do better exactly. right now. Um, and cer- it's certainly the case that like the person with an academic credential is not the paradigmatic Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It's just not. It, it is, it's good work. I obviously believe in it for like some of the reasons that I've told you already. But it's not the case that like every... Christian should be like us, those of us who have postgraduate degrees in something theological. And it's not the case that um, even given its usefulness, that someone is deficient, right? If they don't have like have access to this kind of knowledge the same ways we do. Nevertheless, I mean, all of, all of which is to say that like a body needs diverse parts. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the part that we represent as those people who have a particular vocation to, to study and to reflect is to receive wisdom from other times and places to like think critically about what we're doing in a way that's genuinely important. Okay. So everything I've just said is like, God doesn't, doesn't require you to be an academic. Thank, mm-hmm. thank God. Uh, <laughs> we are, we are basically insufferable. Uh, but at the same time, what we do is important. And if, if what, we, what we have is like, um, in some cases, the memory of how we've lived differently together, and in some cases, um, a connection, you know, just in a very sort of material way, right? A lot of students come into my classroom, and it's in my classroom that they encounter someone like James Cohn for the first time. Mm-hmm. Not because I'm some hero of racial justice insight, but because like, one of the tasks of the person in my role is to steward resources that can speak, speak from outside mm-hmm. to, to people who are, who are coming to join us. And so um, there is a way in which um, it's possible for grace to work through uh, the, the knowledge, the, the skills of reflection mm. that the theological traditions represent. And um, that's not as far from the only means of grace, but it can be a means of grace. And so um, what, does the, what does the average person, what is the average person sort of responsible for? Um, the average person is not responsible to obtain like a credential or to change their career to be like a professional Christian of some sort, but they are, they are called to love God with all their mind among other things. Mm-hmm. And I think like a sincere honesty and curiosity require a willingness to learn some things. And, and um, that oftentimes it's less important that they learn about process theology and more important that they learn about like the history of white Christianity in the United States. Right. And like how they're, 
the exclusions on which their church and like their ways of thinking are based. Um, and so that's sort of, uh, even, even as I make space for us to have different vocations, I think there's a common responsibility to like that kind of reflection. Mm. Um, so that was a really complicated answer, but, but the point is just to say that, um, people often think that like the work that the three of us do is a, is a specialized work and, and it sort of is, but um, a specialized work that, that um, because they don't do professionally, they uh, don't have any connection to. Mm. That's partly on us. That's probably on like people mm. in my profession and how we've, how we've done it. But I, I really do think it's on all of us to share the work of reflection mm. and, and transformation. Yeah, I am. So I'm working with a group in uh, the area that I'm in that's working to um, help us reconcile with our racist past, uh, in particular focused on getting rid of the Confederate statue in town, but we're hoping to go beyond that. And one of the things that uh, I'm working on right now is organizing uh, both a Christian service and then a later like interfaith vigil and the Christian service. I'm hoping I can get enough churches on board is going to focus on um, how we as white churches in this area, but like in the United States have contributed to racism and like what our task of repentance and restitution is now. Um, and we're, we're going to hope that that goes off the ground, but yeah, I think that that's, um, I know for one, given the, uh, so I have been quoted in the newspaper recently and uh, it finally got to a newspaper that my congregants read and uh, several of them Pastor were, Joe, right? yeah. <laughs> um, and so several of them got uh, a little grouchy that I was being quoted because they thought that it was a violation of church and state that I was being quoted in the mm. newspaper as a pastor, mm. which we can talk about how that's not that, but it was really that like, I disagreed with them publicly. Um, and it seemed like I was speaking on behalf of the church and I wasn't. And so I had to write a letter of apology for that, which made me be um, a little more cautious about things. But a lot of my people don't think that they can, um, that, that it is their responsibility to reconcile with any of the the racist impacts of the past or to like think about white supremacy. And so I've been doing a like study on race and Christianity and I've had all of two people show up to it and they're, they're on my page. They are in fact so aware of what white supremacy has done in the church that they're both feeling a lot of white guilt. And so we had to talk about how white guilt is a thing for white people that you don't throw on people of color. Um, and so, yeah, yeah, I am, I'm really caught in this place of what's energizing my like my ability to do this job right now is something that my church is very much not wanting to be a part of mm. um and and uh, oh goodness and my mother shared my like apology letter on facebook hasn't shared my sermons in a minute but shared my <laughs> apology letter <laughs> and i was like thanks matt so it's it's a it's a struggle um i'm not sure where my question was kind of coming out of that but um yeah, I just feel this real sense that um, American Christianity has been, um, like, lazy is the word that I want to use, but I even know that's tied up in white supremacy, so I don't want to use it. It's just, it has been misplaced for so long that it, it feels like we're pulling the rug out from underneath people when we're just trying to refocus it in the direction that the historic mm. church has been going, I guess. 
Yeah. And I just, I mean, I just want to name that that's intellectual work that you're doing. Right. And it's, right. and it's uh, work, th- it's work that someone who's clergy should be doing, but um, that's not your work alone. And that's, you know, this, the longstanding idea of an organic intellectual, someone who's involved in the, I think this comes from Gramsci, um, someone who's involved in the social struggle and who's doing reflection in relationship to that. Mm. Um, that I think is a really useful model, though it's an Italian communist idea from a hundred years ago. Uh, that's like a, a really useful way of thinking. I mean, liberation theology has done things like that too. Um, right. A useful way of thinking about like the Christian vocation to, to right. Right. Yeah. I think that the, the, the lack of curiosity maybe mm-hmm. is how I might put it in, um, in, in, some of our churches now, um, it, it was always something that when I was a pastor, um, uh, frustrated or, or sort of demoralized me that like, for, for me, you know, one of the things that theology and, and um, uh, Christian practice and stuff like that always, uh, uh, always awakes within me is, is a kind of desire and a curiosity to know more and to do more and, 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 and to continue to clarify and, and qualify kind of everything that I experience as somebody who's trying to know who God is. And when I encounter um, in church among some lay folks and, and some clergy and, and really anybody, that kind of lack of curiosity or that kind of um, uh, maybe moral apathy or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. I always think that, you know, it always frustrates me, but I always wonder then what is its cause and what do we need to do as pastors or as just Christian people to just make folks more curious you know, and make folks more interested in the intersection of God and race and the intersection of, you know, human suffering in this way. Um, because I, you know, I, I read a, um, I just reread an, uh, an article that a guy named uh, Donovan Schaefer wrote. He's a, an, a, a, a professor of religion at the University of Pennsylvania, and he's an affect theorist. And he wrote this paper a little while ago, and I just reread it, um, on shame. And he talks about, we've brought this up, I think, on the podcast before, about he, he wrote a, a paper on shame and how um, shame and dignity are these kind of uh, effectual polarities that, that Trump and the Trump administration uses to kind of rile up his the base and 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 you know kind of have power over the base and so one of the things that um, the uh, uh, Trump the administration and his supporters um, are are protected from one of the things that Trump kind of does is protects his folks from shame and 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 kind of not feeling ashamed over. Um, being uh, politically incorrect, whatever that means, or, um, you know, this, that, or the other thing. And so there's this sense in Trump himself that there is this kind of um, power uh, to not feel 
uh, ashamed over saying horrific things about, you know, Mexican folks or uh, not feel ashamed over things he says and does to women or, or things like that. And there's something powerful about that, that folks like want to rally behind. And, um, you know, I, I even do that myself, like in, in, in the, the, what I mean is the, the kind of go-to defense that I use when I'm confronted with something that I've done that's bad or something that I've done that is questionable is I don't care. Ah, yes, that is exactly what you do. Yeah, I'm so you know glad I mean. we've named it. Sorry. Relax. Thank you. I know. I'm just a Trumpster. I just, I'm just a Trump guy. That's all I am. It just it, it has agitated me so many times. You'll be like, I don't care. And I'm like, but you do. You really do. And you're just pretending to not do. Anyway, and that's, now, now I can call you out on it because you've acknowledged Excuse me. It. Excuse me. But this is your therapy hour. This isn't my therapy <laughs> hour. I don't have time for this. But like, I, I think I think about that a lot. I, I have been thinking about that a lot, and 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 so to see it kind of connected to folks not being curious, right? Like mm-hmm. like, mm, no, you know, eh, who cares? I don't care. I don't. I don't want to know about that. I I. I'm tempted, and I don't think this is wrong to think this way. I'm tempted to label this a spiritual problem, hmm. right? Like, like, and all I mean by that is, you know, this is sort of an intangible, um, maybe non-material problem. You know, a, a, an intangible, a way we can approach it might be um, that there's something kind of amiss intangibly, you know, emotionally, mentally, um, effectually, spiritually, you know, that, mm-hmm. that people are being affected by, including me. Yeah. And, you know. Go ahead. No, no, I was just. Okay. Yeah. So not to be like a New York times columnist in 2016, but to talk about, um, the people kind of in my setting are, uh, people who are either exhausted because they have been struggling so hard to like make ends meet, to like get their, to get their life into where they think their life should be, or they are, um, so comfortable that they don't want anything that's going to rattle their comfort to come into their world. And so that's what I find a lot uh, in that lack of curiosity and also that seeking a, um, a strong, firm place to, to, to set their, um, I don't know, sense of self in is that, uh, either they are so tired, they can't be bothered to think about this kind of stuff right now. And so Trump and people like him are appealing because they're giving them the thing to think and they, they seem strong and in, in, in the way, um, or they are, uh, wealthy property owners who've gotten more conservative over the course of their life and think that this doesn't affect them because they're not actively involved in doing any type of wrong. And so anything that's going to allow them to continue to hold on to the wealth that they have and hold on to the comfort they perceive to have, they're going to kind of gravitate towards. And that's been, that's been kind of my thought, but I see that Rick is also thinking and that go for it. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think that's, I think it's all right. I mean, uh, so when, when contemporary people in the United States are incurious, I think there are, affective if you want to put it that way causes and and material causes that relate to each other 
and Joe is, Joe is like just naming some of the ways that that works in, in really important ways. And there's a straightforward sense in which a lot of people aren't curious about the, the story of the land underneath their feet mm. because they know if they start asking questions about it, they're going to find incredible injustice and um, dispossession and expropriation of native folks. Mm. Um, and they will sense that uh, the remedies for that or facing up to that and living honestly in relation to it is going to cost them something. Mm -hmm. And so the affect of discomfort, right, is, is directly tied to their sense of orientation in the world and their, and their material interests just in a very, very crass, straightforward way. And it's also the case, uh, like, as you point out, Joe, that, um, people's resources of time and attention and energy are drained by the like increasing demands made on us by the economic conditions we live in leaving leaving people with little little time and space for and little hope for thinking on their own about how to generate political alternatives and whatever else in the absence of which um the person who comes along making a claim on like what's like a familiar American rhetorical tradition or their sense. I mean, this is the, I think this is really useful in what Ethan said. Um, the sense that they're saying they're giving voice to the resentments and dislocations that can't, can't otherwise be said in public. I mean, there's a potency in that. Um, and it's a, and it's an affective potency and it's also like a material potency. Um, and um, I think it's important to see to see that as a genuine failure of imagination and failure of curiosity, like both of those cases and many more cases, but also to see those people as sympathetic in this sense, right? That we're all tangled in these powers, mm -hmm. uh, these like prevalent ways of understanding and engaging with our world. And um, the point is not to vilify those people for their incuriosity and their fear and their discomfort, um, but rather to work as hard as we can to offer something better. I mean, to change the material circumstances in which they're feeling those things, to enlist their, their power. Um, you know, the, what we've seen, we've seen under these pandemic conditions of nothing else is that if the people whose work turns out to be essential, though it's very low paid, um, if they stop working, uh, <laughs> political conditions change mm -hmm. uh, and, and will change quickly. Um, and so I really think that there's, uh, there's an opportunity for people who, um, I'm, I'm like tiptoeing around this white working class. This is exactly what you were saying about the 2016 narrative, Joe, mm -hmm. right? Like right, right. the white working class is, is a ridiculous rhetorical form um, and it has all these problems. Mm -hmm. But the, the people we have in mind here who are not the only people we have in mind, um, they, have, they have power that's being sort of uh, parasitically preyed on. Mm. And um, that power is not, a, is not itself a bad thing. Um, the point is how to organize it for social social ends, and of course, how to think about it in relation to the broader social distribution of power, which is grossly inequitable. So, um, 
there are real problems. There are real problems for, for uh, American Christians and curiosity. But but one of the things we can do, those of us who um, believe that we've been shown something better, right? Like a better way of life, a better way of relating to our intellectual resources. We can show how it's beautiful. Um, that like uh, the 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 revelations to which we bear witness are revelations of a better way. And that like they're they're true and in a sense like the truth is always sort of austere. It makes demands on you. Mm-hmm. But um also like life-giving and um well and broad and, and like puts you in, in a different and deeper relationship to the world. Like one of the reasons people aren't curious candidly is that people like me are boring. Um <laughs> And uh, if, we, if we can't show, I mean, like the, the Platonists would talk about the convertibility of truth and goodness and beauty, like the transcendentals, right? Mm-hmm. We can't show how like what's true and good is also beautiful. If we can't show how what's good is also like a deep truth about ourselves that will liberate us into something better, mm-hmm. um, then we can't, we can't blame folks for uh, not knowing where to find it themselves mm-hmm. um, is that that's a failure on the part of those of us who are supposed to be doing that work so that's a that's a, a summons like a call to that's a come that's a call to action i think yeah i like that i like ending the episode there if we're okay mm-hmm. with that because otherwise we would just affirm that some more so <laughs> that's right that's fine with me ethan do you want to sign us off sure Friends, this has been a terrific episode of What the Hell is a Pastor. We are Ethan and Joe and Rick, and we will see you next time. Mm